Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to The Universe Next Door, and thank you for joining us today. I am Nick Shalna, and I'm here with Dr. Mike Burhau as we continue a series that was started a few weeks ago on worldviews and how to test those worldviews. Uh, and now we're getting a little more in-depth into specific worldviews. But before we do continue, go back and check out, we did an interview with J.P. Moreland, an awesome philosopher, just a couple weeks ago. Then I had done an episode last week on the nature of Christ, him both being truly man and truly God. Um, So go back and check that out. Let us know what you think. And check out apologetics.org. That's our website. It is a hub for apologetics, videos, articles, and all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, So Mike, I'm pretty pumped to get into this, uh, this worldview stuff. How are you doing? I am doing well. I'm excited to get into it too. Awesome. And you wanted to get into uh, you wanted to get into Darwinism today. You wanted to talk a little bit about you. You could just take it from here. Yeah. Well, well, so as we've been talking about uh, how to test worldviews, we've looked at uh, two uh, basic tests for a worldview. Um, Is this worldview logically consistent? Uh, And that was the first test. And the second test is, is it consistent with reality? So if you want to hear more about that, uh, we have those recorded uh, a few weeks ago. Um, Today, we're going to be looking at a third test, uh, and the third test is, can you live within this worldview? And it's really the test of ethics. Uh, And really what I want to do is get into, uh, so we've talked already about how uh, different worldviews sometimes have different focuses. So there are some worldviews that focus primarily on metaphysics, that is what is real. Some worldviews focus on epistemology, which is how do we know? Uh, And then uh, last, some worldviews just skip you know, metaphysics and epistemology, and they just want to focus primarily on ethics. And uh, uh, the three uh, ethical worldviews that we'll look at uh, for today, and we'll see kind of how far we get, and I might be two two parts. Mm -hmm. Uh, One will be moral relativism, uh, one will be uh, cultural Marxism, and then the third will be social Darwinism. Uh, so we'll very briefly look at those three, and then we'll uh, see how the, go- the gospel is actually an alternative to uh, those three uh, moral worldviews. Cool. So that's where we're going to be going. All right. Yeah. And those are all things that, um, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit, but that are definitely presenting themselves uniquely today. <laughs> right. Yeah. And there's, ac- there's actually more worldviews we could look at. Uh, the reason why I picked these three is because I think they're the ones that uh, come up the most in our culture, in our context. Uh, and so I thought it would be helpful to focus on them. No, absolutely. So, yeah. So if we start with moral relativism, um, I'm going to simplify this a lot, but you uh, could see that moral relativism has uh, a relationship to what's called postmodernism. Uh, and the big idea in postmodernism is that there's no meta narrative. There's no overarching story, uh, which when we talk about moral issues, uh, postmodernism uh, would apply to that saying that there's no objective moral truths. Um, so now we can talk about the, the test of logical consistency here. Um, and uh, you could ask if there's no moral truths. Well, you might, somebody might say that uh, there are other types of truths. 
so we can know things within science. Uh, but when it comes to this area of ethics, we can't know anything about that. Um, well, when somebody says that there's no truth, no objective truth, generally speaking, that fails the test of logical consistency. When somebody comes around and says that there are no moral absolutes, uh, that maybe strictly speaking doesn't fail the test of logical consistency, but this is where we get to our third test. Can you live within that system? Uh, so is it possible to live within a system where you think that there are really no uh, moral values? Uh, and the moral relativists um, will like to say, and this is an idea that goes all the way back into Greek philosophers. There were early philosophers known as the sophists, uh, where they said that moral values are simply what the powerful teach the weak. Uh, but there really are no objective moral values. Um, and so that's something that uh, for many people, I find uh, teaching at the university um, that many students initially at the beginning of the semester would be very into moral relativism. Uh, but usually by the end of a semester with ethics, uh, they would uh, kind of shy away from it. But uh, wow, so that's, that's, that's interesting and encouraging. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it happens because once you start look at, looking at the different moral systems that are out there, um, students realize that there's probably something better to hang your hat on than just uh, we can't know anything about moral reality. So, yeah, right. Um, so that's that's postmodernism. Now, what usually happens when people uh, start to be persuaded of postmodernism, uh, what I found is that they don't fall into that camp for long. Uh, and in our culture, uh, if you start to buy into the idea that moral values are really nothing more than just power plays with the strong teach the weak. Uh, well, there's really two ethical systems that spring out of that. Uh, so some people, and I think um, depending on where you drop yourself into a time period, uh, some people will find one of these systems more attractive than the other. Uh, so the first is uh, cultural Marxism. Uh, the second, as I mentioned, is social Darwinism. Uh, but what's interesting about both of these two moral systems is that they both actually can be traced back to Darwin. Uh, so sometimes people find that surprising because Marxism, you'd say, well, wasn't that traced back to Marx? Um, and it is, uh, but many people don't realize how uh, just how much Marx was influenced by Darwin. Uh, for one, before uh, Karl Marx came along, um, most people, when they were looking at, uh, say, social issues, uh, when they were looking at economics, they thought of it more as uh, a humanities type study and not so much as a science. Uh, well, uh, Marx was very much influenced by Darwin, and he wanted to take uh, his particular field of study and make it a science. Um, he wanted to make it social science, not uh, simply a social humanities, but a social science. Uh, and so he was very um, attracted to this idea that uh, in the environment, in the biological world, that there is a struggle for existence, uh, survival mm -hmm. of the fittest. Um, and he was also influenced by another thinker, thinker named Hegel, uh, who had um, this idealistic way of looking at the world where he had this idea that uh, actually uh, history is a history of struggle. He was thinking specifically uh, the history of ideas. Uh, so he would study the philosophers and there'd be one philosopher that would come along and they would propose an idea. Uh, and then another philosopher would come along and critique that idea and, and there was, you know, a debate going on between these two philosophers. But usually if you just waited long enough, there was a third philosopher that came and kind of resolved the tension between the two. Uh, well, Marx was also interested in that idea. 
And so he looked at the history of humanity, the history of uh, societies, and he said there was a society that would be powerful for a while, uh, but eventually there would be uh, another group of people that would come up and overthrow that power. And within human societies, there is this struggle. Uh, So there's a struggle that plays out between uh, slaves and slave owners. There's a struggle that plays out between landowners and serfs. And for Marx, it was the, the... the bourgeois class and the proletariat class. And so what, what Marx wanted to do is to come up with a synthesis to this. Uh, so how do we resolve this conflict? Uh, and his solution to it is if we find a way to get rid of class distinctions, then there's not going to be any conflict. Um, but, mm-hmm. but all of this traces back to, to Darwin. So Now, do you think, um, now obviously I think there's a lot wrong with Marxism and culture of Marxism. Uh, but do you think that's just far too simple um, of a thought? Um, like, I, I mean, th- thinking both the struggle between like, let's say the oppressed and the oppressor. Um, I mean, do you think that's just too simple of a way of looking at everything? I mean, it might be. I mean, I think there are some things that we can learn from Marx. Obviously, I think he's uh, fundamentally right. wrong with some deep things. Uh, But I think one of the things that he noticed, and it's something that Darwin noticed as well, is that oftentimes you do have this uh, distinction between groups where, you know, there are some groups that seem to be doing well, some groups that aren't doing so well. Um, Now, it's interesting when Marx, um, you know, saw this in Darwin, he was excited and he wrote a letter to Darwin, um, hoping to convince him of his economic um, ideas. Uh, Darwin did not like, (laughs) Darwin did not like (laughs) Marx at all. Um, but, but at root, they, they saw the same problem now thinkers after Darwin. So they, they saw the same problem that Marx was saying, but rather than trying to get rid of class distinctions, um, the social Darwinists come along and they say, well, this is just how the world is. Um, and so you could actually go back to postmodernism where, you know, ethics is just what the powerful teach the weak. Uh, the social Darwinists say yes. And they sort of objectify that as an idea. And they say, and actually what's right is that the strong would prevail. Um, And you see these ideas in Nazi Germany um, with the rise of Hitler's fascism. Um, Mm. And you also see this in the early 1900s with the the eugenics movement, where ironically, that's what the academic elites were attracted to in the early 1900s. Today, many more are attracted to cultural Marxism. Um, But I don't know if you have any other thoughts with that or if that's where you wanted to go with it. But. But no, I think well, there's, yeah, there's yeah, something. I was there. just going to say that that sparked the thought of Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, absolutely in the 20s and 30s. I mean, she was all over. Uh, she was a eugenicist. She actually spoke at KKK rallies, um, and to this day, they will put Planned Parenthoods, they'll put abortion clinics um, in places with mostly Black and Hispanic populations, and I don't think that that's a coincidence. And you know, it's it's really horrible to see where all this stuff stems from, uh, from cultural Marxism, from from Darwinism. Um, including Nazi Germany and so many other things that that I think just kind of stemmed from this, that maybe, you know, Darwin and Marx didn't intend. They may have had good intentions. I didn't know them personally, but um, it, it certainly didn't work. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and I think as we think about this as a Christian, uh, one of the things that we can analyze is, I mean, it all goes back to uh, this idea of, of a narrative. So the postmodernist says there's no meta narrative. Um, mm-hmm both the cultural Marxists and the social Darwinists do have a narrative and the narrative is a narrative of struggle. 
Um, and mm-hmm. so the goal of this narrative is to overcome the struggle. Uh, they just have two different solutions on how to overcome the struggle. Uh, from you know the social Darwinist perspective, he's just the strong will devour the weak, and that's that's how you overcome the struggle. Uh, okay, and and you can see how that would go along with survival of the fittest, for example. And and if really ultimately, if that's your view, then there's no reason for you to drag morality into it. Just let the stronger people kill all the weaker people, and that's. Sure, that's sure. Just, and that that's just what they would consider morality to be. Mm-hmm. Um, now, again, not many people find that attractive today. Yeah. Uh, what many people find being attractive today is more the cultural Marxist standpoint, uh, mm-hmm. where where there's some oppressive class who is keeping down the weak. And so the goal of ethics, and, and you could see this as an ethical goal. You can also see this as kind of a religious goal. Most people don't call it that. But the goal is if you're in uh, the oppressing class, uh, the goal is to confess uh, the privilege that you have, the status that you have that's keeping the oppressed class down. Um, but but the goal is eventually to remove those uh, distinctions. Uh, the gospel really provides a different meta narrative. Uh, so the meta narrative of the gospel is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Uh, so God created everything and it was good. And so so I think one of the things that uh, the social Darwinists and the cultural Marxists recognize is that there's something that is wrong with the world. There is a mm-hmm. conflict that they see in the world from a Christian perspective. Uh, that conflict didn't begin with God and his creation. The conflict really began with us in the fall. And so if you ask from a Christian perspective, what's wrong with the world? Why is there a conflict in the world? The answer from a Christian perspective is I'm actually what's wrong with the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so both the social Darwinists and the Marxists, they want to divide the world into good people, bad people. Uh, right. So either either the good people are the strong or they're the weak, depending on which side you're on. And and the conflict is with the other side. Right. So and, and you're kind of saying Christianity, we recognize that our sin and the issues resulting from it are uh, internal. Uh, but so cultural Marxism, for example, would say they are the problem. Right. Uh, we're, we're just the ones being oppressed or whatever in whatever area it may be. Um, but right. I'm not the problem. I'm the one who's being kept down. Right. And, and if you think about that problem, so so if I'm the problem, well, who's who are the good guys? So if I'm the <laughs> bad guy, who's the good guy? Well, the answer is uh, God, Jesus, the Trinity. I mean, that's that's the only good guys out there. Right. And now, What's so instructive about the gospel, if you ask, OK, so how does God treat the bad guys? How does God treat the sinners? Uh, you have the example with Jesus where the son of man did not come to, uh, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And here you actually have a very counterintuitive picture where uh, the, the all powerful one is serving, laying down his life for the weak. Uh, you have a situation where uh, if you look at, if there was anyone who was ever oppressed, it was Jesus on the cross. Uh, but how does he respond to that? He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. In the gospel, I think you have a, a better alternative, a better moral framework for dealing with the conflict in the world than you have with either social Darwinism or cultural Marxism. What do you think are some of the main differences between the idea of cultural Marxism and, and social Darwinism? Like, what do you think some of the distinctions are? I know you, I know you said that Darwin didn't really get along with Marx or his ideas very well. Um, so what do you think some of the major differences are that led to a distinction or, or kept them distinct? Uh, 
I mean, I think I think the biggest thing is um, identifying exactly what the problem is and the solution. So they differ on those things. Uh, so if you think of social Darwinism, we could also bring in Nietzsche at this point. Um, oh, yeah. So, so Nietzsche has some insights where um, he's arguing for uh, the Superman. Um, he's arguing for um, an idea where actually what is good and right and moral is competition. Uh, mm-hmm. When you when you overcome the weak, that that's what it means to be live an ethical, moral life for Nietzsche. And so he looked at religion, specifically the Christian religion, and he called it the the opium of the masses, because what he right. saw so offensive about Christianity was that it was teaching people to be weak. Uh, Christianity says, blessed are the poor, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, Nietzsche found that to be uh, absolutely unethical. Uh, it should be blessed are the rich, those who are strong, those who persevere. Mm-hmm. That's what you want to be. Um, and he saw Christianity as being a slave ethic. Um, and so so social Darwinism has very much of this competitive, um, be strong, be mighty. Um, and that's the opposite of what cultural Marxism is, where um, if you're, I mean, if you're in the bourgeois class, um, you should start making room for the proletariat. Or if you're in the proletariat class, you should start rising up, but it's emphasizing uh, uh, those who are in an oppressed status above those who are in the um, oppress, oppressing class. Okay. And and you can see as, as a Christian, when you hear that, what, what was the term he used? Uber, Uber, Minch, Uber, uh, I don't know. Right, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not good with other languages, but sure. you know, this, this idea of the Superman, um, you, you could see how a Christian would hear that and say, well, our, our Superman is Jesus Christ. Of course, he's the one who's, who's perfect, who never did any wrong and, and so on and so forth. Right. But once you dig deeper into it, you can see that Nietzsche didn't necessarily mean the perfect person in the way that we as Christians view a perfect person, because uh, he, as you just mentioned, he opposed these, these biblical ideas of what you see in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, um, about loving those who are poor, about uh, God from Corinthians tells us that God, you know, chooses those who don't seem qualified, who don't seem great and mighty and wise in order to, uh, in order to glorify himself. Yeah, absolutely. And and as we think about these um, these three different perspectives, I think one of the things that I like to emphasize, uh, so so I understand why people get attracted to uh, either one of these systems. I mean, right now, cultural Marxism is something that maybe is more attractive for people um, at this moment. Um, but I understand there, and especially when Christians get attracted to it, because they do see things in the Gospels about how we are to take care of widows and orphans. Mm-hmm. Um, they do. Right. See, I mean, Jesus didn't come as a conquering king where he lives in a castle and he's above everyone. He's born in the manger. I mean, there's a lot of things about the gospel where I can see why people make connections. Um, but fundamentally, um, it's it's different. The Whenever you divide the world into good people, bad people, whoever you see the good people, bad people are, you're missing the heart of the gospel. Um, the heart of the gospel is we're all bad people. Jesus is the only good person. And he decides to serve and lay down his life for us so that we can be redeemed. Right. And and I think that's a really important, uh, a really important point that we are called to take care of people, widows, for example, and the poor. Um, but I mean, if you look at the gospels, you know, the story where Mary had brought the perfume to Jesus and dumped it on his feet. And, and the first thing that Judas did 
is, oh, we could have sold that. We could have given that money to the poor. And, and Jesus responds and says, you know, you'll have the poor with you forever, but I won't always be here. Uh, and, you know, he's basically saying the gospel is the most important thing. It, nothing right. else can, you can do all the nice stuff that you can possibly think of and more, but you're still going to hell if you don't know Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the gospel is the most important thing. And even though, you know, social issues in, in treating people in the way that God would desire us to treat them is always right, but it doesn't stump the gospel. And it certainly uh, is not to become a religion in and of itself, as we kind of see today in our culture with with uh, cultural Marxism. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that's such an important distinction that we are to help people. So because sometimes when we when we disagree with something, we can end up going so far in the other direction that that we're all always we're wrong on the other side as well. Uh, we were just talking about this recently with actually in the last podcast, I think I mentioned it. Uh, when you look at church history, a lot of the time, somebody would come up with this heresy, and, and they probably had the right intentions, they probably wanted to do the right thing, but they would come up with a heresy. And then in an attempt to correct them, somebody would overcorrect them and just begin a whole nother heresy. Um, and so I think it's so easy to do that and to kind of say, well, no, we're not supposed to, we don't care about this thing or that thing or this thing or, or whatever. Um, you know, we are to care about these things, but we don't hold them above the gospel that saves. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, one of the things we got to remember when we look at uh, worldviews from an ethical perspective I think it's so important for Christians, for churches to make sure that we're clear on what the gospel is. Mm -hmm. And when we're clear on the gospel, um, it makes us less susceptible to some of these uh, competing ideologies out there. Yeah. And, and the gospel is both for the, the non-believer and the believer. Um, I think it was, was Paul Washer. I'm sure you're, you're familiar with him. He's one of my uh, favorite preachers, but he was preaching somewhere and it was like a conference um, that was mostly Christians. It was, it may have even been a church. And the pastor asked him, you know, what are you planning on speaking about? And he said, well, I think I'm going to talk about the gospel. And the pastor said, well, I've told you, these are all Christian people. That, you know, why don't you talk about something else? And he said, well, because the, the gospel is both for the unbeliever and the believer. Uh, you know, we need to be reminded of it every day of our lives. And, and then we can apply that to all these, all these issues. And it makes them so much more clear when we have the right idea of who Christ is and what he did for us. And, and what we weren't able to do, we can apply that to all these different worldviews and see why there's only one that's true. And it's a person. Yeah. One of the things I say to my students a lot is that um, the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z. Um, now, I didn't get that uh, myself. I've heard this from other people, but I think that's very true. The gospel is the deep end of the pool of theology. It's not just the kid kiddie pool. Um, this is where the depth is at. And so we can spend our whole lives um, marveling at, at the grace of God through Jesus Christ that was shown to us because of his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Uh, that is the most profound truth in, in all of existence. Right. It's, it's the most amazing miracle. Um, and we have a, a little over a minute left. Uh, what would you tell the listeners about, you know, applying the gospel to these things? Because obviously, in the, especially in the last few years, we've seen things that are, are a lot different than what we're used to, especially regarding uh, cultural Marxism. What would you tell our listeners about how to apply the gospel to these circumstances in, in our Christian walk? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the first thing that I would say, if, if somebody is becoming more persuaded of cultural Marxism, and they're also professing to be a Christian, um, the first thing that I want to do is make sure that I communicate with them what 
what I think is probably something right that they're seeing. And that is we should care for those who are marginalized and oppressed. Um, we want to elevate that. Like uh, JP Moreland was talking about last week, uh, we should be mm-hmm. for biblical justice. Um, and so I want to emphasize that. But then I also want to show how the gospel, I mean, if you do focus on the gospel, uh, that will create the, the power in your life to do that. And so um, if it's somebody who is uh, getting involved with social Marxist movements and they see themselves to be more on the oppressed side of things, I would say, well, look at Jesus and how did Jesus respond when he was being oppressed? He died. He laid down his life and served the people who were oppressing him. Yeah, that is wonderful. The gospel is just something uh, we can never know enough about. Um, But thank you all for listening. We're out of time. It goes by so quick as usual. But thank you for listening to The Universe Next Door. We'll see you back here next week. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in the universe next door.